0: Thank You for Your Word that is a mirror for us to see ourselves as we really are, and also a window through which to look at the world clearly and see it as it is, as You know that it is. Give us clear vision. Give us, most of all, open hearts. I pray, God, that there wouldn't be any pride or self-justification or self-righteousness in me or in any of us that would keep us from hearing what You say and doing, doing, Lord, what You've told us to do. Thank you for those who are among us for the first time. May they feel your love and our own. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Good morning. Grab a Bible very quickly. If you didn't bring one with you, there should be one in the seats near you, and open it in one of the most interesting and, for me, most beloved sections in the whole Bible, the book of Proverbs, chapter 1. The Bible is a single book, obviously. But it's also a library that, taken together, tells a single story of God's redemptive love, how He made us, how we fell away from Him, we're lost because we preferred our own way, and at what great cost in sending Jesus to die for our sins, God is bringing us back to Himself. Because it's a library, it has a lot of different kinds of writing in it, and each one of those kinds of writings have their own rules. Proverbs is one of my very favorite parts in the Bible because it is, as its name says, a collection of sayings. Proverbs is most famous for these punchy little two-line statements that really confront the reader and ask you to find yourself in the proverb. In Proverbs chapter 1, we're told how the point of proverbs. See, the nature of sayings or proverbs, whether they're in the Bible or in our own country, every culture has its own Proverbs. For instance, we in the United States say that haste makes waste. In other words, if you hurry, you'll you'll probably suffer some some damage. It's better to slow down sometimes and consider things. Let me show you how Proverbs works. And the most important thing that I have to tell you about Proverbs is found, of course, in the very beginning of the book as we begin this short little three-week series in Proverbs. I believe this is the, first, uh, the third time we've gone back to Proverbs. But let me show you at the outset the introduction of the book itself that'll tell you how they work. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 1. Everybody with me? Did we need better and more coffee out front? That was remarkably unenthusiastic, but here we go. The Proverbs of Solomon... Son of David, king of Israel. That alone tells you that you're stepping back 3,000 3, years in history. Not all, but most of these proverbs, including these in the beginning, were written by King David's son, Solomon, who is famous to this day for his wisdom. Here's the point of proverbs Proverbs are given to know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight to receive instruction in wise dealing in righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple. In other words, if you're ignorant, if you don't know anything, Proverbs can give you wisdom. They can make you prudent in your dealings in life, to give prudence to the simple, Knowledge and discretion to the youth. In other words, if you're a young person, you can gain wisdom far beyond your years by listening to the Proverbs, finding yourself in them, and building your life according to the wisdom they're showing you. To give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth, let the wise hear and increase in learning. And the one who understands, obtain guidance. In other words, if you're already a wise person, Proverbs can take you Deeper and further into wisdom, they can guide you through very difficult situations. To understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. In other words, proverbs won't always be immediately apparent to you. You may find some of them hard to understand. And here, if you want to circle it or underline it in your Bible, here is the foundation and the theme of the whole book. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. In other words, Proverbs is more than life hacks. Are you familiar with life hacks on the internet? 12 keys to make your dog obey, 28 tips to keep your house sparkling clean, right? All these little clickbaity little articles that'll tell you. You know, you've been brushing your teeth the wrong way your entire life. Here's what's really going on. And because we, curiosity killed the cat, another American proverb, we click and 15 pages later find out that we really haven't been brushing our teeth the wrong way all of our lives. We just wanted to waste 10 minutes of our life. Well, proverbs is much more than life hacks. It's going to deal with all kinds of very practical and specific areas in life. I'll show you just a few in a moment. But the foundation, Proverbs says, the very beginning of knowledge. In other words, the start of the path of wisdom, the thing that gets it all going is the fear of the Lord. In other words, a reverent, loyal, loving relationship with God. If you don't have that, if you don't have things settled vertically with God first, you're not in touch with the most important part of life. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. All of Proverbs then is oriented not to someone's best advice, but to the wisdom of God Himself. Proverbs want to show you how life actually works. It always deals with truth and reality. It always deals with very practical matters. And it all comes from the Lord and the very beginning of your life knowledgeable, wise, truthful dealing in life, is to have a loving, reverent relationship with Him. That's what fear means. It's not a cringing fear, but it's knowing God well enough to know who He actually is and to respect Him, to admire Him, to have reverence for Him because of who He is. But people have choices. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, Fools despise wisdom and instruction. In other words, life actually begins and is built on a right relationship with God, but there are people who want nothing to do with his wisdom, who want nothing to do with his instruction or his teaching, and they're foolish. The fool in Proverbs isn't always ignorant, sometimes he is. But the fool in Proverbs, in his core, is a man or a woman who has no relationship, takes no regard, has no place for God in his life. And that second line, fools despise wisdom and instruction, will tell you one of the characteristic literary devices that Proverbs uses to show you how life works. Not always, but Proverbs will often show you a wise man and a foolish man making their way through life dealing with work, or debt, or marriage, or children, or their bosses. And Proverbs says, here's what the wise man does, and here's what the fool does. Sometimes it lets you watch the movie of the wise man and the fool living their lives, see how it turns out for each of them, and then the idea is, what kind of person do you want to be? Sometimes Proverbs are cryptic. Their meaning is not on the surface. They make you sit up, straighten up, and say, I wonder what that means, and that is an invitation into, as it says here, the words of the wise and their riddles. In other words, proverbs sometimes are cloaked in this poetic, obscure language to make you pay attention, slow down, and see if you can find what you're, tro- what you're being told. So, before we come to today's passage, let me just show you how they work, and we'll practice a little bit. Flip ahead in your Bible to Proverbs 12, verse 15. Proverbs 12, verse 15, there's that wonderful sound of pages turning in a church. Awesome. I hear clicking too. That's cool. Whatever works for you. But I'm going to keep advocating for paper. I really do think it's better for you on a brain level, but anyway. Proverbs 12, verse 15, on a screen or on a page. Everybody got it? It says, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. Well, that's pretty simple, isn't it? The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. And that doesn't tell you what to do. It just makes an observation of two kinds of people living their lives. A wise man who is listening to advice, but the fool, what's he doing? He thinks he's right. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. So what do you do with that? Well, you just sit there for a minute and ask yourself this important, humbling question. What kind of person am I? In my dealings with people, do I quickly take advice or do I quickly defend my own way of thinking? What do you think? Practice a little bit. Think about your family, think about your job, students, think about your dealings at school, think about your hobbies and your sports. When you are confronted with advice, when you're told of a different way, here's the acid test, what's your first reaction? Are you quick to listen and consider the advice you're being given, or are you quick to listen to the other person only to stop talking so that you can explain why you're right? That's what Proverbs wants you to consider. And it's broad, the path of wisdom is not specific here, it just gives you a general principle that fools always think they're right and wise people listen to advice because it may vary in your life. You may be a dynamite employee or student who is quick on the job or in the classroom to say, yes, sir, no, ma'am, right away, absolutely. And then you go home and it's your parents or it's your spouse or it's your sibling that gives you advice and you just treat them like ignorant fools. Proverbs invites you to say, look, this is how wise and foolish people behave. How are you doing? Look a few pages ahead in 1710. We'll try another one. Proverbs 17, verse 10, a rebuke goes deeper into a man of understanding than a hundred blows into a fool. Hmm. What's that mean? Well, a rebuke is confrontation. A rebuke is someone telling you you've got it wrong, you've done the wrong thing. And it says that if you're a person of understanding, that will go deep into you. It will affect you. It will influence you. The idea is you're likely to listen and change your way. A fool, on the other hand, might get beat around. He might be beaten a hundred times, and it doesn't make any difference. So just Proverbs invite you both to look back, to look in the moment, and to look forward. You don't have to tell your neighbor, but just consider for yourself, has there ever been a time where you were facing more and more consequences, but you just kept doing the wrong thing? Ever have a time like that? Proverbs would call that a time of foolishness. At my house, our shorthand is, we call it with our boys, doubling down on stupid. You've done something ignorant. You've done something foolish. The consequences start coming in, and rather than turn around or at least slow down, now you more of the same, and more and more consequences, and more and more of the same, and pretty soon, pretty soon, it's a hundred blows onto the back of a fool. That's a rough way to live. And if you continue to double down on foolishness, the idea is no matter how bad it gets, a fool keeps going. Whereas someone who has understanding hears that word of correction and it takes it deep to heart. It hurts, but it affects them, it helps them. Look in chapter 27, verse 12. And we're just practicing, we're just letting God's word examine us. One of my favorites. The prudent, I'm in 27 verse 12, the prudent sees danger and hides himself, but the simple go on and suffer for it. Again, you're not told what to do, you're just told of two ways to live. The prudent sees danger and hides himself, but the simple go on and what happens? Simple means ignorant, unschooled, unlearned, unwise. Well, I read this again this morning. If you want a quick Bible reading tip to grow in wisdom, read the chapter of Proverbs that corresponds to the day of the month, every day for the rest of your life. Whatever else you're reading, today you would read Proverbs chapter 7. Tomorrow, Proverbs chapter 8. And along with anything else you're reading, if you listen to Proverbs, they'll give you wisdom. And the beauty of wisdom is it has these big, broad truths because Proverbs are like truth concentrate. It just boils down life from God's perspective, God who made life and knows how it works. It boils it down into this catchy, colorful little saying, and it says to you, it says to me, look, Bruce, prudent people see danger and they hide themselves. In other words, they take refuge. They see trouble coming and they get out of the way, and I like the poetic language of it, the simple, wham, And the smart people, the wise people, saw it coming five minutes ago, and they got out of the way. The simple just continue and get slammed. They get crushed by it. So that's a very broad principle. That's truth concentrate. Here's how it hit me this morning. We we had an earthquake. Did you notice? We had a couple, actually. I was at the very top of a movie theater when this last big one hit, and it was really interesting to watch Temperaments. Just come. Oh, oh, what are we gonna do? And his her husband sitting next to her going, "Chill, right?" And just after 30 seconds in, you're beginning to wonder, "Is this actually it? Right? Could this be the one? Is this the one that's going to make me famous in my my region? Am I the one that's going to be tell the story of amazing survival and heroism? Because of course, none of us are going to die, right? We're going to be heroes and tell our story to the New York Times." But we lived through it, and we watched the movie, and I thought nothing of it because I've been here for a long time. And then this morning, I read this proverb, and I was reminded of earthquakes. And I was reminded of something that I'll just confess to you regarding earthquake preparation, a little bug-out bag as they call it, I've done nothing. <laughs> I'm not sure we have a bottle of water at our house right now. I've, No preparation whatsoever. Now, did Solomon have earthquakes in mind? Doubtful. But he gave me truth concentrate that prudent, wise people see danger around them and make preparations. Simple people just blunder ahead and pay all the consequences. So now I've heard wisdom and now I have a decision to make. Yours might be different. It might be regarding something like a conversation that you need to have, or insurance you need to buy, or if you're a student, homework you need to do. If you're a college student, a syllabus maybe that you should read uh, on the first day of class. Look in Proverbs 29, verse 11. Sorry, too personal? (laughs) I'll let God make the application. I'll I'll stop uh, theorizing. Here's one I don't think Solomon anticipated, social media, Facebook and Twitter, but here's a good one. Proverbs 29 verse 11, a fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. You ever rant on Facebook? You ever go off on Twitter or Instagram? Ever do one of those long passive-aggressive posts where your best friends know exactly who you're talking about and wondering what the pushback's going to be? Well, again, 3,000 years later... That's just one very specific application of this truth concentrate, but the idea of this is simple. A fool lets it all out. He lets it all go. These are the people that say, I call them like I see them. You don't have to ask me because I'll always tell you what's on my mind. Well, Proverbs says that's foolish. What does a wise person do? A wise person Restrains himself, restrains herself. They quietly hold it back. They know more than they say. They say less than other people, and that is wisdom. This is how Proverbs works. Now, quickly, let's look at a passage today Proverbs 24. If you'll turn back with me, please. Verse 10. This is one of the times in Proverbs that a few of these verses hang together. There's a little teaching block here, but it begins with something that I find rather, rather cryptic. Proverbs 24, verse 10. If you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. First time I read that, I thought, well, that, that's kind of hurtful. I already had a bad day. I collapsed under it. I fainted. I couldn't handle it. And when I woke up, you told me my strength is small. Thanks a lot. What's this about? Well, you ever see a boxer or a fighter get knocked out on the first punch? It happens every once in a while. Guys will train for three to six months, do a fight camp, cut weight, look amazing on the poster because everybody looks really mean, right? Kill every person that looks at me. And then what they didn't know is one of them's like a predator that's learned to walk on its hind legs, and the other's just a normal human being. And the predator walks across the ring, and smack and down goes the other guy. And it literally took five seconds to finish this. What's happening here? Well, the poor guy that got knocked out on the first punch wakes up and realizes he was in adversity, but he could not begin to cope. As it turns out, what he thought was a great deal of strength was totally insufficient. Couldn't handle it, couldn't stand up, couldn't meet that day's demands. Proverbs 24 verse 10 just begins with this cryptic, like I said, a little bit personal observation to the reader. It's talking directly to us. It's not using a literary device anymore. It's telling you something personal. If you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. And the Bible reading tip, and this is exactly the sort of thing we're working on Wednesday nights here in the auditorium. We're in a Bible reading class together where I'm teaching you the rules of the road for all these different kinds of sections of the Bible. This is what we're doing on Wednesday nights. You're welcome to join us. One of the tips of reading the Bible is when you come to something you don't understand, just keep reading and see if the context helps you understand it. If one sentence doesn't make sense, read the paragraph and see if it helps. If you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small and it continues talking directly to me rescue those who are being taken away to death, hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. Now, are those observations or are those commandments? This is somewhat rare in Proverbs. It's not only making observations about life, it's actually confronting the reader directly. It makes a general observation. If you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. And then it turns to me and it says, Bruce, rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. What's this about? Well, it's poetic language. We don't actually see, rarely do we see people being dragged off to be killed. That's happened a few times in world history, but not often. And probably none of us have ever witnessed that. We've rarely probably seen someone stumbling along not knowing that if they keep tripping and stumbling in that direction, the result will be their death. They will be slaughtered. It's poetic language. What does it mean? This punchy, colorful language is an invitation from God who wrote the Proverbs through these wise men to make you think. In the world around me, who do I see that's being dragged off to death? In the world around me, do I know anybody who is stumbling along through life? They don't know it, but I can see it. They are actually stumbling to their own demise, to their own death. Well, that made me think about a lot of different things in life. It made me think about the ministries of our church. First group I thought of was an organization we support called Saving Innocence. It's a wonderful organization of specially trained social workers who go to police stations the night or the day that children are rescued from sex trafficking. They go to that child and they provide wraparound care until that person is an adult and on their way to having a good life. Those people, those kids, those victims are being taken away to death. It wasn't up to them. They were actually victimized. Someone took advantage of them. We were told through their educational efforts that most of the people who find themselves in that situation come out of the foster care system because, as one criminal said, we know we can go after these kids because when they go missing, nobody comes looking for them. Well, that's an instance of someone who is being taken away to death. They're being victimized. It's not up to them. They have been captured, and they're being hauled off to something awful what am I told to do? I am too. What's the commandment again? Rescue. Rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. It made me think also of all the different things that we're invested in and that we support to advocate for the sanctity of human life. Our friends at Horizon Pregnancy Clinic who save hundreds of babies every year because they take a frightened girl who's not sure what to do, who thinks her life is just about over, and there's going to be terrible consequences. And then they show her through the miracle of modern medical technology, a little face. She can hear a heartbeat, and in a moment love is born in her heart, she decides to keep her baby. We're supporting that. Some of you are volunteering and staffing that. There might be victims on both sides, both Mom and baby in this case. I think most of all, of the countless people who are living in Southern California, what they think is the good life, or trying to build the good life, but they take no account of God. They have no idea that Jesus actually died for their sins, that Jesus was tempted in every way, the Bible says, as they are being tempted. But unlike them, He's not sinning. He's facing all of their sins and all of their temptations, and He did it righteously and perfectly, and He died on the cross to trade lives with them. They don't need to get better, and they don't need to figure it out, and they don't need to rescue themselves. Jesus is a Savior. He is a rescuer. He is the one who died on the cross and rose from the grave to give people eternal life. And most people aren't thinking about that this morning. They're stumbling toward the slaughter. In my mind, in about 10 or 15 minutes, I reflected on verse 11, thought of all those different categories, and I was told that my responsibility is to rescue and to hold back people who are headed toward that kind of doom. Two different words, two different conditions. Some are victims who have been taken captive and are being hauled to their death. Others are ignorantly headed toward their death. And that helps me understand verse 10. Verse 10 says, if you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. Rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. How do those two verses fit together? Why are they side by side? Because rescuing people and holding them back from death and hell is hard work. It doesn't feel good. If you're going to present Jesus to another person and you're not entirely sure they're ready to hear it, it takes a great deal of courage. And most Christians are quiet when it's time to talk about Jesus because they make a quick calculation of the social cost if that person doesn't want to hear it. If they think it's some kind of political or religious rant, they count the cost of that person turning away from them, icing the relationship a little bit and they step back, and they're quiet instead. And Proverbs 24, verse 10 says, in that day of adversity, in that day of challenge, when you knew that person was headed away from God, if you don't respond with a rescuing effort, you're weak, Bruce. The whole point of strength is to be ready. You've been given strength in Christ, not for your own sake alone, but for the sake of others. This is why Jesus was asked later, 3,000 years later, uh, rather 1,000 years later after Solomon wrote, Jesus was asked of all that is written, what's the great commandment? Jesus said to love your Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's one, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Anybody skipping along toward death, happily hoping to die? We look out for ourselves, so when we see our neighbor headed toward spiritual death, we do what we can to rescue them or to hold them back. They may not appreciate it. They may resent it. They may think we've lost our minds. That's why strength is required. A rescue effort to hold people back, to keep them away from a certain spiritual death isn't easy. That's why God gave you strength. And it gets, believe it or not, even more confrontational than that in the last verse. If you say, behold, we did not know this, does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? And again, I have to decide and interpret who this is talking about. If you say, "Behold, we did not know this," does not He who weighs the heart perceive it? Who is the one who can weigh hearts? Whatever that may mean, God. To weigh the heart is this very poetic way of saying this, Bruce. You don't feel you don't fool God for a moment. You complete ignorance, but God knows the truth. God knows my interior life. He knows my motivations. If I'm cowardly, He's the first to know it. If you say, behold, we did not know this, does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? And will he not repay man according to his work? Those last two lines are both sobering and encouraging. Proverbs 24, verse 12, in the last two lines, says that God is the one who keeps watch over my soul. There's God, the rescuer. This God that you're in a covenant relationship with, this God that you humbled yourself before, that you said, God, I can't save myself, take over, save me, forgive my sin. You're in God's family now. He will watch over your soul. He is your protector. He is your rescuer. He will always answer. He has watch over my soul, but He says, if I don't watch out for the souls of others, He'll know it. And He'll repay everyone according to their work." What does that look like for Christians? That looks like the disappointment of eternity when God shows you the difference between what you could have done and what He called you to do and what you chose to do instead because you didn't use enough strength. Because you said, what God is asking me to do is too hard. My vision for my own life, which I stray from so often, because it is hard to be a rescuer. It is hard to be one of those who hold people back and try to introduce them to God and save their eternal soul. We can't do that, but God can. We're His messengers. We're the ones who announce good news. We're the ones also who announce warnings that don't let people go blindly on without a word of warning, without our maximum effort. My vision for my life, my vision for yours and for your church, is that, and for our church, that someday we will stand before God and hear these amazing words, well done, good and faithful servant. Rescuers and warners and pleaders and prayers and people who shed tears over the sins of others know on the front side, not everyone will listen. We cannot possibly rescue all, but we can warn all. We can live the kinds of lives that make people jump over us, knock us down, go around us to go on to death in spite of our best efforts to tell them of the God who loved them and saved them. And there's nothing more Christian than that. Look at how Jesus put it. Here's the point of Proverbs 24, verses 10 through 12. Godly people, godly people are those who rescue the dying, and they don't make excuses. Whatever else you say about your life, whatever relationship you have with the Lord, once you see Proverbs 10 verse 12, you're told if you actually know this wise and loving God, it is your mandate, it is your commission, it is your life to be the one who rescues, who holds back, who stands between people in a certain death, and you refuse to make excuses. It's the most Christian thing you could possibly do. Look how Jesus explained it in Mark 10, verse 45. Read this with me. It says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give His life as a ransom for many. Here's the context if, you're, if you don't remember. Jesus has been talking about His own death and His own mission. And the disciples take this occasion to argue amongst themselves about who's doing better, how how far they are up on the org chart, who's going to be better and bigger in the kingdom than the others. And Jesus gives them this stern little talk, and He says something about Himself. Even the Son of Man, that's a messianic title. It's drawn from the book of Daniel. It identifies the Messiah, the Savior that God would send. And Jesus is using a little biblical shorthand to say, look, I'm the one God promised you. I'm the only one that's coming. I'm the only one who can save you. But I didn't come to be served. I came to serve. And in fact, Jesus says, He came to give His life as a ransom, as a rescue for many. We serve a rescuing God. We're in God's family because of the rescue He gave to us. We can't sit back on the sidelines, rejoice in our own salvation, and watch the rest of the world lose. Watch the rest of the world be condemned. If that's not specific enough for you, listen to what Jesus said in the Gospel of John after His resurrection. There was so much chaos in the disciples' hearts in spite of all that Jesus had told them and warned them, they did not expect His death. They could not conceive of the Son of God on earth doing anything but winning. To see Him subjected to a mockery of a trial an inhumane, cruel beating, and then a crucifixion on a Roman cross, it shattered them. To see him back from the dead was something they themselves could not believe at first. The best and the most faithful of the disciples could not get their minds around it. So, in showing up in their lives, he speaks to all that chaos and all that fear, and he says, Peace be with you. Be calm, be peaceful. And then he said to those disciples and to every disciple ever since, read the whole verse with me. Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. There's your commission. It started in Proverbs 24, a thousand years before Jesus was born, in this broad, general, wise principle that those who know God and have been made by, strong by God use their strength, not for themselves, but to rescue others. That if someone will die, it will be in spite of our best efforts, of our tears, of our warnings, of our pleadings. That people will have to hurdle us on their way to hell. That we won't stand quietly by and say, well, your choice. No, that's not what rescuers do. That's not what people do who are trying to hold others back as they stumble over the cliff into judgment. No. A thousand years after Solomon wrote, Jesus presents himself back from the dead, the conqueror of sin, and turns to every disciple and says... I've been sent by the Father, and in the way He sent me, now I send you. That means that a church family like this has a lot of different causes. We haven't all been touched in the same way. We all haven't been scarred in the same way. But your experiences, your wisdom, your disappointments, your failures, the sins that God forgave you that might be different from the sins God forgave others, all of those end up to be a beautiful story that God is writing to you and through you to give you a soft spot for some little population among the great numbers of people who are stumbling along to their own death. It puts all of these ministries in perspective. And it makes us the most concerned for people's eternal souls, lest we help them feel a little bit better, give them a slightly better life before they face God as a judge rather than as their loving Heavenly Father. Why am I telling you all this? Because the easiest thing for a church to do is to forget that it's a rescue station and start acting like a country club, especially for a middle-aged church like ours. It's gaining quickly on its 60th birthday. It's all too easy for us to forget the wisdom of Proverbs that says you were given life and you were given strength so that you may rescue those who were in your same condition. Godly people spend their lives, spend their money They give generously of their time and their money. They give of their expertise. They show other people their scars to warn them, to plead with them saying, please, you don't know me that well, and maybe you are so in love with what you're doing right now, but I can show you how it ends up. I can show you the pain and the disappointment that it lies ahead of you three weeks, three years from now. Please don't do this. Godly people, rescue the dying. They don't make excuses. So let's make this as practical as we can. If you have your sheet, would you do one last thing? Would you please open your bulletin up, find that little sheet if you haven't been taking notes, and make this very specific and very practical. Write down the names of at least three people that most concern you. Because I've been talking about stumbling along, I've been talking about people who are being hauled off to their own death. Maybe some names came to mind. Maybe you saw some faces, as I did, as I wrote the sermon. Maybe you remembered some stories. Would you just sit quietly with the Lord for a minute and make it specific and make it practical? Write their names down. Might be family, might be coworkers, might be classmates, someone you share a hobby with, that you enjoy so many amazing things. The only thing you don't really talk about is what matters most. In closing, let me make a personal plea. Straight up, I'm pleading with you now. It would be wicked to talk to you about a God who rescues, who's given the people He's rescued the commission of going and telling and warning and pleading with others. It would be awful for me to tell you about that God and not invite you to be sure that you have been saved and forgiven yourself. My great fear and concern would be that Since church so easily becomes a club that you would think if you're new here or you haven't really caught on to what we're trying to do here, that you would come here week after week and think that we're just trying to make your life better. No. That'll be a side effect. What we're really trying to do is present to you the one true God who sent His Son to die for your sins, who can give you eternal life. And I'm inviting you now, I'm pleading with you now, if you're not certain of your salvation, turn to Jesus in prayer right now and ask Him to save you. There's no magic words, there's no ritual. What there is, is one person humbling themselves before God and say, God, my sins bother me. I see them, I feel them, my conscience reminds me. I know I can't save myself. Please, Jesus, save me. You're going to trust His death and His resurrection instead of your best efforts. That's it. That's the message that you turn around from the life you've been living and turn yourself over to Jesus. I did years ago, and He saved me. I am far from perfect, but His grace has been constant and faithful from that night to this day. And I'm pleading with you, if you're not 100% sure, if you're not literally willing to bet your eternity on the fact that you're at peace with God, that you'd turn to God in prayer right now and ask Him to save you. Because it would be a tragedy for you to be concerned about others without being sure that you have been saved yourself. Let's pray. If you're not certain of your relationship to Jesus, let me invite you to call out to him right now just the way I was explaining it. Say, Jesus, my my sins, my shortcomings, all the ways I've blown it, offended God, disappointed others, I see that. I'm turning around. Please forgive me and save me. And if you do that, please put a little stake in the ground Take a step of commitment by taking the card that's in your bulletin and letting us know. It won't add anything to it. It'll just let us know so that we can pray for you and encourage you in those first awesome steps with God as someone once encouraged us. And if if you've been rescued, if you have eternal life and you know it, Take this time to take those three or many more to Jesus and say, God, give me the strength not to fail when it's hard, not to go quiet, but to be strong, step up to the adversity of the rescue effort, and speak for you. Here are my three, here are my six. Here are the people I am most concerned about. God, keep us always from being a country club. Keep us always on mission. Forgive us for the times we've strayed and the things we've done to make the message less than clear. Eternity's on the line. Souls are at stake. Give us clarity of vision. Give us a humble, broken heart for those who still don't know you. And God, I thank you for any and all who this morning have turned to you in prayer and asked you, Jesus, to save them. I rejoice that you do. If they have questions, let them make that clear. And I pray, God, that you would save them, that they would rejoice, and then they would join the effort. Bring this good news to others. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.